Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Anagreta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician and the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University. And I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the ANU. And I'm Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. Policy Forum Pod is produced here at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the ANU, and we offer a range of public policy-related programs that tackle some of the most important and complex problems of our time. From the 9th to the 12th of May, the Crawford School will be hosting a range of webinars with academic experts, and if you're interested in designing and delivering better public policy, please do come along and have a chat about your study options. To find out more and to register, you can visit crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. We are now to our fourth episode in our mini-series on care. And of course, care and valuing care is a theme that runs across all that we do here on the pod. Last week, we had a really interesting conversation with Ian Fry, who has just been appointed to the new role of Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and Climate Change. And this is a position that was established late last year by the UN Human Rights Council. And Anna Greta, I think we could see in that conversation that we had with Ian, the importance of bringing together human rights, care for individuals and societies, and care for the planet, and the extent to which those different forms of caring um, simply can't be, be be considered in isolation from one another. They are intimately woven together. Absolutely. And I certainly think Ian did a superb job of explaining to us how human rights and climate change are so deeply intertwined, particularly when we think about it in the Pacific Island context, and how contending with one issue means addressing the other issue in, in, in tandem, in parallel, and in concert, particularly with a, a, a framework that relies and values the, the caring for people and place. Before we jump into today's episode, we've got some really exciting news to share with our listeners. On Wednesday, the 4th of May, we're going to be recording Policy Forum Pod Live in a crossover event with our friends and colleagues at Democracy Sausage with host Mark Kenny on campus here at the Australian National University in Canberra. So for those of you who live in the region, we would love to see you. 
There's been criticism over the lack of substantive policy debate and discussion in the election campaign so far. So at the live show, we're going to be looking at how policy and politics mix in elections, taking a look at how some of the crucial policy issues are missing from the campaign and asking a question that I think so many of us are wondering about now, about that relationship between politics and policy, about why when we have good policy solutions for complex problems like the extinction of animals that we discussed with Kelly O'Shaughnessy, like climate adaptation that we discussed with uh, Mark Howden and Barbara Norman, or even the issues that will come up on today's podcast around aged care, why we're having such a difficult time translating important policy issues into the politics of the day. So this event is free, but registrations are essential. We'll leave a link in the show notes for further information on the event and how you can get your tickets. And we're really looking forward to seeing as many of you as possible uh, next week at ANU. That's going to be a great event. So please do come along, people. Anna Greta, it will be exciting for you and I to be in the same room. Amazing to be in the same room and with an audience. Amazing. Very much looking forward to it. Today, Anna Greta, we are going to be talking about an issue that I know falls into your area of, of professional expertise and something that is very, very near to your heart um, and I think something that many of us are reflecting on. We are continuing our mini-series on care and the importance of not simply recognising but valuing deeply care. Today is our fourth episode and we're going to take a close look at aged care services in Australia. This is an issue that has been subject to, to much attention, including the Royal Commission in recent years. Caring for elders in any society is crucial, and it's something that in many cultures is not considered so much an obligation, but a privilege. In Australia, we know that many people who work in the aged care sector do so because they value the opportunity to care. They do see their work as a privilege, and yet their work is so often undervalued, both socially and economically. We heard from Casey Chambers, CEO of Anglicare, just how poorly paid aged care workers are in that episode that we had with Casey and John Falzon in response to the budget. And the work that people do in situations of aged care is very often under-resourced. And this has dire implications for workers, but so too does it have implications for people who are living in aged care. And as we were thinking about this show, I brought to mind the incredible advocacy of Merle Mitchell, who passed away last September in an aged care home, and some of her comments are edged in my mind. I remember her evidence to the Royal Commission when she said, I know I'm here until I die. So every morning when I wake up, I think, damn, I've woken up. I am sure that if you ask most people here, they would rather be dead than living more, if they're honest. Now, this is really shocking. This is not care, and this is not something that we should accept. And this is not a comment on aged care workers who are so often incredibly committed. It's a comment on a massive systems failure. And so that's what we want to explore today. In August last year, a report of the Committee of Economic Development for Australia warned that Australia currently needs 17,000 more aged workers to meet basic standards of care. By 2050, it's estimated that Australia will need 400,000 more workers. Currently, 90% of the aged care workforce are women and 30% are migrants or from a migrant background. 
This reflects on the feminization and the casualization of care globally. Just last week, aged care workers across five providers in Australia voted to take industrial action as the Fair Work Commission prepares to hear a claim to lift the pay of aged care workers 25% above the award. But of course, in real terms, that means uh, an increase from around $20 to $25 a day. We're talking about very low levels of remuneration. And so as the federal election looms and major political parties are both making promises around aged care, we'll ask what this means for the way we value aged care in Australia and most importantly, what we need to do to move forward and to ensure that care is genuinely part of the aged care sector in Australia. Anna Greta, to talk through these issues, we've got two fantastic guests joining us today. Would you like to introduce them for us? Yeah, absolutely. Sharon, thank you so much for that introduction because I think you're showing again the importance of uh, of the aged care environment and the complexity around that and, and again bringing back into our value of caring um, and how we can use that as a primary framework uh, to improve outcomes, particularly in this sector. We have two extraordinary guests with us today. Um, Diane Gibson is the Distinguished Professor of Health and Ageing at the University of Canberra. She has held senior appointments in, at both the university and in public service sectors. Her strong interests in the policy research interface have characterised her work across sectors of health, ageing, gender and social policy. Diane is a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences and regular listeners will remember that she joined us in mid-2021 to discuss caring for older Australians, particularly in wake of that Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety that took place last year. Welcome back to the pod, Diane. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. It's lovely to be here, Anne Gretchen. Alongside Diane is Kasha Bale. Kasha is an Associate Professor of Gerontological Nursing at the University of Canberra and ACT Health. She's interested in how we can improve healthcare delivery for older people with complex health needs. Kasha is a registered nurse where she continues to care for patients. Her nursing experience and career has combined both research and clinical roles with experience primarily in general medical and acute palliative care. She's passionate about sharing scholarly inquiry with nursing students, industry and professional groups to address structures and processes that enable quality, person-centred care. Kasha, it's great to have you with us for today's discussion. Thanks so much for having me. Diane, we spoke to you on this topic less than a year ago and Sharon has painted quite a dire image of the industry. Over Christmas and the New Year period, Omicron has really impacted on our community, devastating so many, resulting in the loss of more than a 1,000 lives now in aged care services this year alone. It appears that little has changed since our last conversation, but what are your thoughts on where the aged care sector is at now? I I find myself still puzzling uh, as to why it is that we haven't been able to make more progress in relation to the aged care sector, uh, I feel that we've all been aware of the critical issues facing the sector for years, perhaps decades, and yet the progress is very slow. I, I wanted to start out today by just reminding everyone of something that is basic to all our lives, and that's food. If I could start with food, because some of the concepts in aged care might be a bit foreign to some of our listeners, but I think we all understand food. One of the key planks of the ALP policy going into this election is that they're 
They're saying that they're going to provide all older Australians in residential aged care with real food, fresh, nutritious, tasty, safe. And I want our listeners to just pause and think for a moment what it means that in Australia in 2022, we're actually saying that we need a policy to provide decent food to older people in residential aged care. And that that's a deliberate pause because I do want people to think about it. The backstory to that is at the time of the Royal Commission, the average spend on food uh, per day per resident in aged care was $6. Now, uh, with the increased funding that the federal government put in place, an additional $10 a day as a supplement to the basic daily fee and a requirement for reporting on what's being spent on food and nutrition, the average report coming through is around $12 a day. But still, a third of providers are spending less than $10 a day on residents on their food and there's about 2% spending less than 6 Our minister, our Minister Colbeck, has been quoted as saying, a spend less than $10 by any provider is no longer a satisfactory outcome. Residents deserve more. I want us to think about when it was a satisfactory outcome. Was it two years ago or four years ago? And, and what does that mean? for us as a nation and how we think about aged care. I, I think that's such an extraordinary place to start, Diane. I think those numbers that you can put around how we value caring, particularly for our elderly and particularly in residential care, uh, the idea that that um, a, a meaningful life can, can be achieved in that environment with such a small amount of money spent on some of the basic dignities of life, including food, um, really does. It, it gives us all pause for thought. Um, Kasha, have you got thoughts on where the aged care sector is at now? And I guess particularly following on from Diane's commentary on how much has changed in light of the Royal Commission. Yeah, thanks so much, Emma Greta. Look, I, I think we are in a challenging place. I, I'm feeling somewhat hopeful in it because we've had so many challenges. We're attempting so many ways around making change in policy through the Fair Work Commission, through the Senate, through the changes in terms of 24-7 registered nurses. Um, but these issues have been ongoing. I was just looking last night at a paper published in 2003 talking about the 1997 Aged Care Act and the problems for nursing because clinical nursing and professional nursing and, and the conceptualisation of clinical care and the needs of complex older people who are going into 24-hour care being beyond that which is just residential and home care. And so on the one hand, we need to look at the basics, the fundamentals like nutrition, which needs to be rich and fulfilling and is often part of our kind of meaningful activity every day. But then we also need to be able to have the staff that can support, that can assess, that can interpret, that can make complex decisions about whether somebody's choosing to have a steak even though they can't swallow well and what the risk and benefit might be. Uh, and how to have those conversations with families and what the implications for end-of-life care might be. And that means that you need, you know, skilled, specialised, well-educated staff who want to be there and who want to stay there and build those relationships to understand the complexity of eating <laughs> when you have complex illness. Um, and that's what has been eradicated since that act. That's what we haven't been able to put back into place. And we have many situations and and I was astounded in the Royal Commission that we were relying on anecdotal evidence about how many residents a registered nurse had to look after 
we don't have numbers. And so whether it's between 12 and 140 residents for registered nurses, that's a huge responsibility. And we have conversations about whether registered nurses want to work in aged care, but when they can work in an acute sector where they have responsibility for four to maybe 12 residents with all of the supports and other personnel surrounding them, then I'm not surprised that we're having this these conversations around attractiveness and retention. But I think that we need to focus on what makes a healthy workplace environment rather than making any assumptions about people not wanting to work with older people. I think that picture that that you both page is a really confronting one. And I think beginning by thinking about food, which is so central to all of us, is just so powerful because it is so real. I, I think for, for anyone listening to imagine what it would be like to be spending so little a day on food, but also having no choice about the type of food, what it is that you eat. Food is such a central part of our lives. And you know, the research that I do is with children um, often living in contexts of poverty. And one of the things that our researchers showed so clearly is that food is also deeply relational. You know, it's around meals together that we actually bond and we form relationships. We we talk about food. You know, so food has such deep meanings. And to reduce it to a small dollar figure, you know, I think is, in, you know, and simply a budget line is really deeply disturbing and perhaps, you know, suggests where we where we are at um, in terms of aged care. And, of course, these issues have become something of a conversation in the lead-up to the election. In the lead-up to the election, both parties have made pledges in relation to aged care. For example, Labor has promised a nurse in every aged care provider for 24 hours a day. The Coalition, in response uh, to the Aged Care Royal Commission, has made a promise to boost the number of home care packages um, and to pay aged care workers an $800 bonus. Without kind of going line by line through the various promises, I'd be really keen to think, to hear your reflections on the campaign so far and whether we're heading in the right direction in terms of the broad commitments and the values that we see underpinning those commitments. Diane, do you have um, thoughts on, on where we're headed with the, the campaign in the lead up to the election? Absolutely. <laughs> I'd like to uh, to jump in on the issue of the $800 bonus, I suppose. Uh, in 2020, uh, a case went to the Fair Work Commission for a 25% uh, increase in wages for aged care workers. They're currently, uh, on average, paid 10 to 15% less than workers in uh, in similar roles in, say, the, the health sector. Uh, that case has still not been resolved. The ALP in its election pledge is promising to support that proposal or has indeed supported that proposal. The coalition government has not. And the difference between a 25% increase in salary in an ongoing way and a, uh, a one-off eight, up to 800, up to $800 bonus, uh, is, is significant. And the problems of low wages in the sector, which lead to problems of attraction and retention, are not going to be resolved by a one-off payment. Kasia, what what are your thoughts on that? You, you work with people who are right at the the, the coalface, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd support Diane's points, and and I'd also highlight that we have to think about the culture that's been created. One of the issues that I've heard from people working in the sector about creating a bonus like that is that it only pays half the staff. 
So if you have a nice environment, whether it's an institution or cottage-like homes, and the care workers and the nurses are getting a bonus, but the cleaners and the uh, food support technicians aren't, then you are halving the kind of satisfied workplace in terms of that environment. About half of the people are getting it and half of them aren't. And so that's just talking about like the one-off moment about a bonus and, and about, I guess, that what is often perceived as a tokenistic little cash handout making the difference between actually um, providing a, an increase in, in salary. And I guess, you know, there's been an outcry about, you know, do we value aged care workers? Do we value older people? And we have a tradition about demonstrating value for individuals, and that is through salary. That That is how we recognise the value of and worth of something in society. That is the, how economic rationalism works. And yet we haven't been able to demonstrate that yet. And a bonus, I think, is, is almost an insult in, in framing that. And we have to remember that a 25% increase, we're talking about a difference between $20 an hour to $25 an hour. The, the pay rate is so low, it is only just above minimum wage. People can get paid more working in Woolies and Aldi and stacking shelves rather than taking on the responsibility, doing complex care, intimate care and dealing with life and death situations frequently uh, and people's suffering and people's joy. But that's something that we should be uh, valuing and, and we have a tradition in how we do that. Sharon, one of the things you um, mentioned was the, the, the 24-7 issue. And uh, I know, well, both Kesha and I feel pretty uh, passionate about this. I think, though, that Kesha has the, the capacity to, to bring some, some stories to bear on what that really means uh, when – uh, the coalition government position is 16 hours a day, which means overnight, no registered nurse there. And the proposal of the Royal Commission, backed by the ALP, is that there will be a registered nurse available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, Kasha, I know you have uh, lots of examples on this, but perhaps just a few well, and, and perhaps I'll go to the, the data first. So there's a PhD student who's uh, just submitted a publication with data from a 1,000 residents or, or bed cases uh, in relation to after-hours registered nurses. Uh, and she was able to demonstrate an association that where there are less registered nurses after hours, and in this case all 10 uh, residential care fa- facilities actually had a registered nurse after hours, which isn't the case for all facilities at the moment. But there was an association between lower rates of registered nurses and higher rates of adverse events like pressure injuries and falls. And so this is um, wonderful that we can demonstrate that there is this association because until now we don't have the data to be able to clearly do that. And that is what I found out outrageous. Like it, I don't mind what, how we staff facilities if we're able to provide quality care, but if we don't have the granulation of data to be able to demonstrate or understand how we're impacting on that care, then, then how can we know? And that's why the Royal Commission had so many incidences and stories and narratives of people's experiences, and that's incredibly important. But we would be able to understand that better about that impact if, if we actually had better granulation and transparency of where the money that residential aged care facilities are being paid is going towards staff and staffing, and therefore we can understand better how that's associated with the experiences of residents. Some of the the stories that do come out, and certainly there are nurse practitioners in in palliative care who will talk about uh, setting up a comprehensive plan for somebody to be able to access after-hours pain relief while they're dying. And if there aren't registered nurses who are able to provide that pain relief after-hours, 
who are, if there aren't registered nurses to be able to do the assessments to interpret whether somebody needs that pain relief and then to evaluate the impacts of that pain relief and then other side effects that might need to be managed, then we're not managing people at end-of-life care. Uh, and a lot of dying happens between the hours of 3 p.m. and 7 a.m. Uh, so this is an important area that we really need to address with policy. And I, I think it's probably important just that the consequences of not having access to registers nurses who can manage those issues at two o'clock in the morning. The consequences are that there's either distress for the patient and there's suffering that we would as health care practitioners very much like to see alleviated, or that that patient has an unnecessary transfer into a hospital environment, into emergency departments that across the country we know are working under stress. So the investment into good quality uh, support and, and resources, caring resources in aged care, have these tremendous advantages both for the individual and then also for the more, more broadly for the healthcare system, particularly the hospitalised system. And I think from the subjective experience of the many, many stories I've listened to looking after people either in residential care or, or associated with residential care over my career, um, there's such extraordinarily inspirational staff that work in that area. Um, and it's, it's a workforce that I have a tremendous amount of respect for. There's also clearly growing frustration across that workforce. Just last week, it was announced that wide-scale industrial action is, is planned and going to be taken with aged cares, care workers warning their employers that they will be walking off the job to demand better pay, working conditions and better career certainty. Most notably, they've vowed to strike prior to the election. How did we get to this point, do you think? Kasia, we we'll come back to you. Yeah, we might have already answered it. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't been listening. I mean, these staff have been saying the same things for so long now um, and, and many of them are, are tired of saying it. You know, when your most passionate advocates are the ones who become si silent, that's when you need to be concerned. Um, so I, I'm slightly terrified if this next round of, of vehemence doesn't work because it can't continue. The people who are working in aged care do often do it because they love working there. I have so many, you know, um, assistants in nursing who come into the degree of registered nursing because they want to keep working with older people. Um, but the frustration at not being able to control their environment, the frustration with not being able to provide quality of care uh, is just so significant. And, and I think some of the responses to the Royal Commission, which were about putting in more regulation to try and improve quality, but they end up just doing more paperwork. They end up drawing people away from the bedside to be able to demonstrate that they're doing more for the patient at the bedside. And, and with the, the change to the ANAC tool from the ACVI tool, my concern is still that we're, we're double assessing that we need more registered nurses to be doing the screening to be able to determine whether they weren't the funding. We're, we're, we're not getting back to using assessments to benefit the person at, at every stage the documentation should be about supporting the individual in their care not supporting the regulatory requirements and and so it, and that's what nurses will say that's what the sector has been saying is they want to be able to provide quality care and and, and the tension between creating policy that gives the oversight to determine whether there it is quality care or not and using regulation as a stick to try and inspire better care versus uh, enabling the facilities and the staff at the ground level to do the quality care that they're trying to do is the challenge for policy and one that we clearly haven't got right. That the sway, I think that that's the biggest thing is really focusing on, on the revolution, that the disruptive innovations that we need to make change. The softly, softly hasn't been working. Change in the Aged Care Act has been accepted, but we're still, you know, if we don't have the full complement, if we're not looking at, 
both the salaries and wages and the educational pathways for assistants in nursing as well as for registered nurses, as well as access to specialist care with GPs and nurse practitioners and allied health. You know, this, this is the, one of the most complex uh, populations that we have in the country is going to need a multi-component, you know, intervention and policy to be able to address it. But we need to listen to the sector and not the advocates necessarily running the sector, but the individuals on the ground and their experiences, as we heard from the Royal Commission and the recommendations from the Royal Commission. Diane? I guess I'd say that the current government has been in power for nine years. They've had nine years to think about, work on and address aged care. And we haven't really seen any improvements. In 2018, we had um, an aged care workforce strategy released. Uh, We've had the establishment of the National uh, Aged Care Council uh, on Aged Care Workforce. But, But nothing has changed. Between 2018 and 2020, there were five reports that talked about the issues of labor force and workforce in aged care, but nothing has changed. And um, the Royal Commission, such powerful recommendations, but we are not seeing the changes and it's not surprising that people working in the sector um, have lost patience. I also think there's a complex interplay that perhaps isn't often given enough attention in terms of retention and attraction and education. Uh, When we make changes to the university sector, when we reduce or fail to increase funding, we affect the flow through of uh, of of students to become staff to work in the sector. And it's the same with with TAFE and with Cert threes and Cert fours. The fees we charge international students who then often work in our aged care sector are very high and yet the remuneration is very low. And we need to be able to have a policy setting that actually looks at that interplay. Kasia was telling me um, one of our, our, our PhD student, actually, but who is a senior nurse academic, um, the situation she's currently confronting. Kasia? So she's needing to pause her PhD, partly related to COVID impacts, uh, but these are impacts both on herself and her family and on staff. And so staffing within her faculty uh, has dropped and, and there's lots of sick leave. And so she's replacing 13 to 15 different classes for her academic staff. And so the challenge for nurse academics is that not only are we trying to support clinical placements, that education of our undergraduates to bring them up to skills that, and knowledge that we need, um, and particularly in gerontological nursing, um, but we also have to often prop up whatever the other changes are in the university sector. And so if there's a call for more numbers through the university, they'll often come into nursing. Uh, and so bigger numbers, 350, 450 students that you're trying to put out in clinical places Placements. And you're also then managing their needs in terms of private sick leave and absences and then their mandatory training in terms of making sure that they're making up their hours in those clinical placements. We need to maintain those relationships with the clinical settings and be able to have strong supports. And obviously in residential aged care, if there's not many registered nurses, it's very hard to place undergraduate nursing students with registered nurses to be able to gain the skills that we need for the population that we're trying to serve. 
But so at that uh, personal level, that that conflict and that tension, this PhD, we obviously need more nurses to be PhD prepared to build up that research knowledge and uh, to be able to continue leading the country. But that needs to be on hold in light of other events. The, the two of you have um, painted quite a remarkable picture of a sector that still needs a tremendous amount of attention uh, for for uh, the, the changes that need to take place. We're going to take a quick break here and we will be back in just a moment continuing this discussion. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here with Diane Gibson and Kasia Bale in the fourth episode of our mini-series on care, and we're talking about aged care. Diane, when you were last on the pod, you spoke about the role of ageism as a contributing factor to the way that we as a society view aged care, and that was such a powerful point that you made. And of course, in addition, we can't overlook the fact that it's primarily women who work in the aged care sector, um, particularly you know people who are, are, are on the ground in facilities every day, it's normally women, and often women from a, a migrant background. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts about how ageism and also sexism and racism intersect in this sector to help us to explain how we got to this point and how we need to move forward from that. Um, I'd like to hear from both of you, but maybe, Diane, we could start with your thoughts on that. That is a, a challenging question, um, the intersection of ageism and sexism and racism. An anecdote just to start with, I was speaking with um, a, a very experienced uh, nurse practitioner and manager yesterday who commented that one of the problems in uh, residential aged care is that we so often have uh, Western managers, and uh, they are in residential aged care supervising a myriad of staff from a variety of culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, and that there's actually a cultural divide. And uh, I, I just sat there and looked at her, really, because I hadn't thought about that as one of the other divides in society between uh the management teams and the workers on the ground. I'll let that sit there and perhaps Kasia will pick it up or perhaps one of you two will. I think we have to accept that we have a significant level of ageism in Australian society. I think we have to accept that 
given what we know of residential aged care, given the dark stories we've heard through the Royal Commission, given the, the, the dark stories we've heard through 20 years of reviews and reforms, that we, we have not demonstrated a valuing of older people in, in our society, but particularly in residential aged care. There is uh, around 80% of the workforce is female. The estimates are that a fifth are from a culturally and linguistically diverse background, but I suspect it's actually higher. And perhaps later we can talk about the fact that our labour force data is really terrible anyway. What that means is that these are people who are often not best placed to advocate for themselves. We've got a history of, uh, in Australia of noting that areas where there's a strong proportion of women are underpaid, and this is, this is no different. I think I'd like Kasia to jump in, and perhaps I can come back, uh, just to reflect on this from a clinical perspective. Look, I think it is a huge question in terms of that intersection between ageism, sexism and racism in, in residential aged care. I certainly think that the diverse population that are working in aged care is, is old news, if you like. These are working groups that have been accustomed to working in these diverse mixes for a long time now because that's been the nature of the work they are. The care homes are often reliant on visa workers. They will know that they have got somebody who's going to come and work with them for two years, probably while they're trying to get PR. They'll have certain restrictions on the hours that they're working, uh, but they will probably be quite committed during that time. They may have a degree in their home country and they will bring a richness of, of cultural values and interests and music and uh, other kinds of things that they will then share with that workplace. And, and I think many residential facilities are fantastic at that, at that blend. Um, but I do think that there is a challenge in, in, um, managing cultural and language barriers. And, and I think more than, than that diversity issue or, or the racism issues that it's often about education levels, um, and, and lower socioeconomic standing, if you like, in terms of actually supporting and valuing the work that's being done, uh, and being able to, to regulate it. The care workers don't have any registration requirements. And both political parties have got proposals in terms of screening, uh, but it's pre-employment screening. It's not using ARPA. It's not using the registration board that we have for all other health professionals that are working with vulnerable people. Um, and so that kind of oversight, I think, is perhaps more relevant than some of the other components. And, and I, if you like, I think that's the demonstration of ageism, is that we don't apply the same policies to ageing and aged care that we would be applying to any other sector. And in any other sector, you know, an increase in uh, uh, outputs, an increase in productivity would be expected if we increased the education levels that is associated with increased performance. That would be expected in any other sector. And yet we keep talking about additional training or bits and bobs and bonuses in aged care rather than focusing on the key levers that we use in any other sector, which is pay and education. Uh, sorry, I might have got off tangent there, <laughs> Diane. Did you want me to go back to you? No, I was going to I was going to um, leap in to talk about casualization, but I think I might get I might let Sharon and Amagreta have a, a word or two in here before I do that. 
I think it's such a complicated, quest, complex question, as you've both mentioned, trying to, to disentangle ageism, sexism and racism within a system which should be founded in caring. And we've been talking a lot on our podcast about the value of care and the way in which we place value on care in our society. Um, and it, it, it does seem that that care framework and the way in which we value it, and I think we all do, we, we value it personally, we value it in our lives, we value it when we think about the way in which we'd like to be treated or we'd like to see our family or friends treated. Um, how we translate that into a policy priority does remain a significant challenge. June last year, we discussed the whether the, the fact that the system really requires a complete overhaul, and we've already highlighted, I think, some of the, the uh, significant findings from the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety, and that report remains an extraordinarily important read. We're also very much aware of the stories of COVID-19 outbreaks in aged care, both at the beginning of the pandemic but particularly in just in this year alone, we know we've had 1,000 people who've lost their lives to COVID in aged care, uh, which is more than the first two years of the pandemic combined. Diane, let's go back to the Royal Commission report, which of course is titled Care, Dignity and Respect. How can we translate those ideals into action in the context of system failure? Well, I think we need to accept that we have system failure and that $800 bonuses, even 25% wage increases are not going to fix the problem. And we probably need to break down the elements of the system. There's a structure to um, the residential aged care setting and indeed the aged care setting in general now, which is largely premised on uh, large-scale private-for-profit providers and not-for-profit providers. We look back to the 1997 Aged Care Act, which removed the requirements for acquittal of government payments for uh, food, for care and various other things, and left that uh, in the hands of the providers. And here we are 25 years later, yes, 25 years later, uh, wondering why we're in a system where money's not being directed to the things that we we believe are important. At the same time, what seems to be happening is, as Cash has already mentioned, we're piling on more and more layers of regulation and, and accreditation and documentation and requirements. And I think we have to ask ourselves why it is that the system needs that level of, of regulation. What can we do to produce a system where people are paid to provide high-quality care, want to provide high-quality care, come to work and do that so that regulation is an issue of the 5% or the, the very small proportion of cases where things are going wrong. So the way in which the whole system is structured, I have no idea how that is unraveled, but I do know that that is where we are as a result of the system of incentives and payments that has been put in place over the last 20 years. With workforce, we've allowed a situation to develop where a very large proportion of our staff are being paid as casual workers or on part-time contracts. The most re recent aged care census um, from 2020, which, which may not be the most accurate of of data sets, but it is what we have, suggests that 7% of the, of the care 
workforce, of the direct care workforce, is in permanent uh, full-time work. 7%. And and 71% um, of workers are in what's called part-time permanent work. But we know a proportion of those will be on minimum hours contracts where they might be uh, guaranteed 10 or 20 hours of work, but they actually need 40 hours to make ends meet. This is a sector where 30% of staff report wanting more work. This is a sector where we saw in Melbourne the result of many workers having to move between sites, which was the transmission of COVID, in order to get the hours they need. When you think about what that means for paying your rent or trying to get a loan or whatever it might be, this degree of casualisation, 19% are actually casual workers, or a precarious form of employment where you don't know how many hours you have, is undoubtedly going to influence the nature of the sector. And uh, before we finish up today, I'd like to come back to the subject of access to primary care and allied health in residential aged care uh, and the way in which we haven't managed to enable that uh, at all. But uh, that's uh, that's another topic. I'd just like to jump in and mention you're asking about, well, what is the big question about why we failed? And you talk about the 1,000 deaths that we've had just this year in residential aged care. We need to remember that, that the larger proportion of deaths and COVID infections over the past two years have been predominantly in the private sector, where there is evidence in Victoria that the government-run facilities had less cases of infections and less deaths. And so I think we need to really do keep in mind that the market mechanisms that we're relying on for competition and uh, uh, profit margins to drive uh, improvement in the sector is what we could say has failed in the last 20 years fairly clearly. We are going to need to, to begin to draw this conversation to a close, but it has been such a powerful conversation and it is such a confronting conversation. You know, when we hear just the how dire the situation is um, in terms of the system that we have developed and for people who are living and working within that system. But, Kasia, at the very outset, I think you said that that you saw some possible glimmers of hope and I, I would like us to end by perhaps trying to look for a few of those glimmers of hope. And I wonder if there are any examples globally when we, we look around the world where there are examples of, of where aged care is being provided in a way that is genuinely caring, that is well-resourced, and where some of these workforce issues have been addressed. Are, are there any of those examples that we look, can look to and, and learn from? Diane, perhaps we could start with you. I'll start with some numbers, which is to say that uh, Australia spends around 1.2% of GDP on aged care. Uh, and there are other countries, uh, such as Denmark and Sweden, where the figure is around 4% of GDP. We have uh, the the most recent intergenerational report said that we would get to 2.1% by 2060. And what we have there, I think this goes back to your ageism question, is a projection forward of our current state. And when the current state is not good. We don't want to be projecting that forward. So we know we spend less than a number of other countries and perhaps acceptance that it is valid 
to spend more money on the care of older, frail people, remembering that there's only about 200,000 older Australians in residential aged care, there's about 900,000 receiving some form of community care, then there's over 3 million who aren't receiving or requiring any form of support. So we have an increasingly healthy older population. We have a very high rate of informal care in Australia. We have a very committed older generation in terms of paid work and volunteer work. And those are the directions that I, I see as, as a positive going forward. We have the resources as a country. We have the financial resources. We have the human resources. And that can be the basis for a much better aged care sector if we have the political will and commitment. Kasia, what are your thoughts on, on what we can learn from, from other examples and where we might be able to draw glimmers of hope from? Look, I certainly um, would advocate for some of the nurse-led models of care. There's some Bertzog models, some reframing where uh, we actually prioritise smaller teams that can lead and innovate uh, within their environments. And certainly we're seeing some of that even in Canberra. We've got an example um, of, of a nurse-led model that, that is really much more focused on the individuals and their preferences and their freedom of choice uh, and then working out how to make the dollars match that. And, and that does require creativity and it does require innovation and often outside the box and uh, financial investment to a degree. But I guess I'd just like to reassure everybody that there is a real body of, of workers, of nurses, of care workers who, who adore working in this space and who want to make it better. And, and that's what I guess I see in the hope of seeing people out on the streets and advocating for 24-7 nurses and, and uh, really walking with their feet to make change in the sector that we have had enough of, of a lack of change and a lack of support and so that the community is rallying together to say, these are our people, this is our community, this is not people living in a small institution over there that I hope I never make it to at the end of my life. This is our community. We, we have to stop separating it from, from our daily existence and, and I'm taking great, I guess, uh, inspiration from that and, and with a sense that we are on a shift to change policy and, and practice and experiences uh, for people in, in ageing. I could listen to the two of you talking and reflecting on on the benefits of change if for our aged care sector, if we really can, uh, the the solutions that we have available to us now that are there, that are readily, readily available to us, and that would make such a tremendous difference both for the people who are in residential care, their families, and for the workers there. But we are nearing the end of today's conversation, and we like to finish with asking you for one piece of advice we'd like you to offer us your one piece of advice for policymakers about putting person-centred care at the centre of aged care policy. Oh, the one piece of policy advice. Um, I'm, I'm going to say one thing that we haven't talked about yet, and that is about that transparency of funding. So I think I feel like we have some momentum in, in getting the 24-7 nurses. We have some uh, policy about education of workforce, but we need transparency of it if we're actually going to be able to trust it moving forward into the next 20 years. So, Kasia, by that you're saying that we need to know where the money is being spent and who it's being spent on and for what, and that that detail is important and it should be publicly available. Thank you for saying that so clearly. Well, that that publicly available and, and detail is critical. My piece of advice would be to look at how we bring uh, primary care and 
by that I mean allied health and general practitioners more strongly into residential aged care and into the care uh, of people in, living in the community because we will have more of those. And by that I mean let's look at occupational therapists. Currently in residential aged care they, they're, um, they're funded to provide massage for pain relief but they could do so much more to prevent falls, to uh, support social engagement, um, to support uh, physical activity These are and communication. These are all important areas. These are people that need allied health support and general practice support, and we have to get a clear policy where the funding enables that to happen. They are very powerful messages for us to to finish off with. And I think when we listen to experts like yourself, we can see that the way forward is actually not as difficult as it might appear. There are solutions. There are immediate solutions available if we have the political will and the commitment to make change. Hopefully the focus that we're seeing on issues around aged care as part of this election campaign may mean that that change comes about into the future. But this has been such a a powerful conversation. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks so much for having us. A pleasure to be here again. Anna Greta, that was such a powerful conversation. We've spoken to Diane before and, you know, every time I I talk with her, you know, I'm, I'm... struck by the extent of her knowledge um, and the the common sense and the thought that she brings to these issues that make them feel so much less challenging in terms of being able to find solutions. But this is an area that you work on, that you have expertise in. What were your thoughts? It's so wonderful to have Diane back with us and to have Kasia alongside her. It was a rich discussion on an issue that is central to the lives that so many of us it will live either it might be an issue for us as we're getting older now, or we may be contending with this for for our parents or for our friends as they're ageing. We might be imagining what our future looks like in aged care, particularly as we've considered uh, the pandemic and the the aged care impacts of the, the coronavirus pandemic in the last few years. Caring is such an important part of how we live, and we, we heard that when we spoke with Millie Rooney about the Public Good Project just recently. One of the things that many of us look for and value in our lives is how we can be cared for, particularly during periods where we require additional care, in, particularly as we're ageing. So this is a key conversation. And what I found was so important about today's conversation is both the depth that these two experts brought us of their their experience in research and and solving discrete problems, but also that broader value perspective on how we might do better across the sector by valuing the work that is being done. Yeah, Anna Greta, I had similar thoughts as as we were moving through that conversation. And we had a, a couple of comments with Kasia um, after we finished recording. And those comments, I, I just wanted to bring into the conversation because she made the point, and I think this was reflected in the comments that she made throughout the, the pod today, but she made the point that within the aged care sector workforce, we see people who are so incredibly committed, you know, with an absolute passion for caring, for continuing to work with commitment and enthusiasm and very often love, despite the system's challenges and the lack of resources. And I think that's something that we really need to keep at the forefront of our thinking, 
that on the ground for the people who are, are doing this work, who are providing care, care means a great deal. Care is what drives them. Care is what they do every day. Where we are seeing the failure is at the policy and the political level where our decision makers and our leaders are not reflecting the deep commitment to care that so many people within our community have and 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 exhibit on a daily basis. And the other thing that strikes me is, you know, we, we when we hear the narrative in the media and in the political discourse around aged care, it feels like this is an overwhelming problem that we can't resolve. You know, what we always try to do here on the pod is to bring research-based evidence to the conversation. And we did that today. And what we hear is that the solutions are there, ready for us to pick up and to put into place. This is not impossible to solve. People like Diane and Kasia can tell us what to do if we just listen. Absolutely. Perhaps if we value care. Sharon, I'm thinking about next week's live pod that we're hosting with uh, Democracy Sausage. And at the centre of that conversation next week will be this primary question on why, despite having deep understanding, despite having good uh, solutions that are available to us on complex policy issues like climate change, like climate adaptation, like preservation of our natural environment, like aged care and residential care and the way in which our health services work, why we can't seem to translate that, that in a way that makes a meaningful impact to the lives of the Australian population, to the, to the population who will be voting uh, on May 21st here in Australia. Um, and so I'm very much looking forward to that conversation, to the insights that will be provided by our other colleagues at the Australian National University on, on how we can do this better, how we can do our politics and policy better in concert to see some of these solutions really um, introduced in a meaningful way. Yeah, I think that is going to be a very important conversation next week, Anna Greta. And I think it might be a lot of fun. So people do come along and join us. Um, of course, it'll be going to air um, as as a podcast, both through Policy Forum and Democracy Sausage. But if you're in Canberra or the region, come along. You know, there are gonna, there's going to be some heavy discussion, uh, but but it, it will be fun. It will be enjoyable. Absolutely. Yep. So thank you, listeners, for, for joining us on a, another conversation around aged care and how we can do better. I certainly found today's conversation inspiring, maintaining my hope for our future. Policy Forum pod is, of course, produced by policyforum.net. We will leave a link to the publications that we've discussed in the show notes there. We do love feedback and we love hearing from our listeners. You can reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum. You can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net. We do, of course, have this special crossover live show next week with the Democracy Sausage team. And if you're in the region, in the ACT, please come and join us. And otherwise, we look forward to presenting that to you as next week's podcast. From me, Anna Greta Hunter, for now, I will see you next week. And from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.